When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, January 10th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here today with Alfonso Pacatiello, the author of The Macro Compass and Real Vision's Weston Nakamura. This is shaping up to be a volatile week, so we decided to pull in not one, but two of our best thinkers to help us all make sense of what is going on. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Maggie. I'm so happy you're here today because it was a rough Monday, if, especially if you were long risk assets. Tech stocks continued their march lower. The yield on the 10-year got as high as 1.8%, and Bitcoin briefly dipped below 40,000. Uh, before we jump in, a short time ago, Real Vision founder Rao Powell shared his thoughts on some of the technicals that he thinks are contributing to the move in crypto. Let's have a listen. Well, interestingly, as you know, I thought that we were going to see a large rally in crypto in the back end of the year. That would have been playing out the historical patterns from 2013 or 2017, but it didn't happen. That took me by surprise. Um, and that made me sit down and look at the market and figure out, okay, what the hell is going on here? Why didn't it do it? Is this good news or bad news or indifferent? What is it? So I broke apart the market, and I'm going to go through some of the charts in a minute. And I realized that the network growth had slowed down significantly. You see, what had happened is a huge amount of retail had come in last year, and sorry, in 2020. Then in 2021, we start off the year with a lot of institutions coming in, allocating capital. And then what happened was we started to see the rise of inflation. As inflation picked up, wages didn't pick up as fast. And the marginal bar of crypto, the marginal investor, the retail investor, was kind of sidelined. And so that kept the network growth slower. Then we saw China, and the Chinese were essentially banning crypto, and the number of active wallet addresses collapsed. So what you've taken is an all-time high in wallet addresses had suddenly fallen by about a third as these Chinese participants had left the marketplace. And the network has yet to adapt because it hasn't gone back to a new all-time high. And I'll show you some charts on that in a bit. So it's been one of these sideways years. Now, we've not really ever had one uh, in crypto like this. Now, ETH has been more bullishly biased, and that's been driven by the buybacks of uh, the, the burning of tokens um, by the 1559 uh, changes that took place during the year. And that has kept it outperforming. We've seen things like Solana, AVAX, um, Terra also doing similarly because they're earlier in the network. As people moved away from Ethereum, which is expensive, for NFTs and stuff like that, where there's more um, high frequency volume, they um, moved to these other protocols. The other protocols started exploding in price because the network is being used, i.e. Metcalfe's law valuation. Um, and, um, and in addition, many of these have got burning too. Interesting stuff. Just a little snippet there of Raul's outlook for the full interview. Uh, you can check it out on Real Vision Pro Tier. Um, Raul brings up a really interesting point, though, that impacted the retail investor. Um, we know there were big drivers on the upside, both in crypto, but also in some of the big tech names You know that we saw piling into those trades, really pushing, especially the Nasdaq higher. 
What do you think is going through their mind now? What happens to that market dynamic now that we're in this potentially more volatile, higher interest rate environment? So, Maggie, I think the main message I want to pass across is that people are waking up to the fact that the Fed is going to tighten. I mean, literally, they are going to tighten. If you ask people around three months ago, you know, there were doubts, maybe a couple of hikes, maybe a slow tapering. Now we're talking about four hikes. That's Goldman Sachs coming out today with a note talking about four hikes. It's pretty much consensus. But we're also talking about quantitative tightening at this point. So we went you know, all the way from QE to tapering, which is slowing down the pace of increase of the balance sheet to quantitative tightening, which is quite a thing. It means literally reducing the balance sheet. And you know, as the average investor out there gets accustomed to that, and also interest rates start to reprice higher, and I should add, real interest rates start to reprice higher. Valuations in the most high beta sort of assets out there start to matter a lot because your, you know, your incremental uh, increase in risk-free real interest rates basically allows you to place money in a cash short-term risk-free alternative at a, a lesser punitive rate. And therefore, valuations that are always a relative matter tend to get hit. And I, I guess that's just what ha what's happening here. If you look at asset classes performance across the board, it's the high beta stuff, the, the stuff that is really sensitive to a Federal Reserve interest rate cycle, very sensitive to real interest rates. That's the one which is getting hit the most here. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out, right? We we have a, a class of investors who've never really seen this before. I mean, it has been a long time since we've been in this environment, and it's a big switch very quickly. I mean, Weston, how is this playing out internationally, especially now that we have a backdrop where we may have central banks moving at different speeds? Yeah, um, well, just to pick up on what you just said, that we've never seen a class of you know investors who've seen um, higher rates before. This reminds me so much. This is exactly what people say about my generation of millennials um, now sitting on trading desks, some of them now becoming managing directors and all that. Um, you've never seen what a non-QE market looks like. Well, you've never seen a non-bull like bull market in um, you know rates either. So let's, let's all just calm down about that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, on to the, uh, the international thing. Yeah. So first of all, <clears throat> last week or before the uh, the new year um, uh, started, so basically at the very end of December, um, I had a kind of solo RVDB, and I pointed out basically all of these uh, different regions and their market holidays and why that's important. Because absent like you know certain uh, you know regions and players, um, you know markets it's going to affect markets. And I specifically pointed out that the absence of Japan um, for the, you know, when everyone comes back in uh, in, in January, Japan's still going to be out. Japan's a major buyer of U.S. Treasuries, so you might see, you know, yield spike um, on that Monday. Well, they did. Then when markets reopened for Japan, they leveled off for that time being. They've obviously spiked since then. But um, what I said was like, let's not, you know, those sort of moves, let's not attribute all of that strictly to like inflation or um, the whatever latest Omicron headline is or whatever that may be. Today, Japan was closed again. Um, so you are absent of the largest, you know, uh, foreign creditor in U.S. Treasuries. Once again, the markets and you saw a, a significant move in, in yields. 
would yields have moved the same way if Japan had been open? Who who knows? I, I you know, but um, you are missing. Uh, you know, you are absent a, a large buyer, and I'm sure that that contributed as well. And at the end of the day, like treasuries are just very much so, just uh, like any other asset. It's a, it's a FOMO thing, right? Like you, when you know, the Japanese could also get caught up in selling um, because other others are selling, or buying because others are buying, uh, and not necessarily some you know sort of fundamental thing. Everyone's kind of looking you know, to wait, waiting to pull the trigger. So um, I think that generally, though, the eyes are going to be on you know uh, the Powell confirmation in the Senate. Or uh, in Congress and uh, on, on CPI that are both coming at the, kind of at the same time, and I don't think that there's a lot of people that are either in their offices or actually put putting capital to work before ahead of that. Um, so, you know, heavy volumes on the equity side, but I don't think that there's too much on the rate side. Right, right, and that, that we do have these two major events coming this week. Um, we we have a, we have a, a lot of questions coming in already. Keep putting them in. We're going to get to them. Um, but Alf. This is such a big change in thinking. And Weston, absolutely right to point out the millennial thing. I often wonder if the more experience you have, the more it colors what, what you think is going to happen because you're already running the end game instead of just sort of, you know, watching the developments unfold. But um, Alf, is, is, are, is the market correctly pricing in what's happening with the Fed? Have they gotten too aggressive about this call? So I just tweeted something before the Real Vision Daily Briefing, which basically said, Jimmy Dimon came out and said the Fed needs to hike 25 times. He says this every time, you know, rates need to be 5%, 10%, whatever. So yes, come out publicly. There will be many more hikes than four this year. Um, Jeff Gundluck has come out saying that, you know, you need to be short the bond market. Goldman Sachs came out with four hikes and accelerated schedule for quantitative tightening. Uh, every strategist I know on the street, which I still talk to, is telling me that you need to be bearish rates. Real interest rates have already sold off 40 basis points since the beginning of the year, which maybe doesn't sound too much, but it's a quite large move in only 10 days. I mean, in standard deviation terms, it's pretty large. It's a large move. So you see all of that, and you see that the front end of the euro dollar uh, curve is pricing about three and a half hikes from the Fed this year, Maggie. So, you know. It's basically almost fully pricing in four hikes, which seems to be a reasonable amount the Fed can pull off this year. And everybody out there is already talking about quantitative tightening. So as you and I are talking about it in Western, then it probably means that some of it it's already priced in as well. So I just said, maybe it's time to lean long tactically bonds out here, but there will be different dynamics out there that impact different um, parts of the bond curve which are also very important for different equity markets or for crypto. So if we look at the front end of the bond market, is the euro dollar market wrong in pricing three and a half hikes this year? I said it before and I will repeat it again. The Fed will tighten. They're looking at CPI at 7%, which will come down, but it will be still way above their mandate. They're looking at a very tight labor market. We have seen the last labor report and participation rate doesn't pick up. The pie of labor supply is not expanding, but the job openings are still there because the, op the economy is still relatively strong. As a result, you get a pretty tight labor market. They're looking at November 2022 midterm elections, and there undoubtedly is some political pressure to make sure that real wages, as Raul pointed out in his clip, real wages are negative. They need to turn up again to make sure that you know the consumer is able to effectively be the engine of the next 
growth phase, cyclical growth phase. In order to do that, you need to control inflation first. And, and also the risk reward for the Fed year not to act is pretty bad, if you ask me. So they, they will tighten, which means probably the front end of the bond market is correctly assessing the possibilities here. But the long end of the bond market is telling us that you know this is quite, uh, well, it's going to be a tightening that is going to cost uh, something to the long-term future growth, basically. So the long end of the bond market is having a very hard time in pricing a regime change. Uh, I have one of the charts here, chart number three, for this Real Vision Daily Briefing, that shows the very clear trend third-year bond yields have been in, in America for the last, uh, what is that? I think it's uh, 30 years on the chart, probably, even longer, 35 years. Since 1987, 30-year bond yields have dropped from 9% to where they are now 2%. And you can see this very clear linear trend line that I depicted in orange at the Macro Compass uh, newsletter that I write. And you can see, I pointed out sometimes uh, the regime changes that we heard throughout the last 35 years. So there's a very clear channel, and then 30-year bond yields tend to trade upswings and downswings around this channel, but the trend line is very clear and it's downward trending. And the last regime changes we have listened to were in 2010, where everybody told me that QE was inflationary and therefore bond yields had to go up. That was the, the regime change. Of course, nothing happened there. 2013, we had taper tantrum. That was another regime change. Well, nothing happened again. And in 2018, everybody thought, Jimmy Dimon included, that 30-year uh, bond deals should have been 6%. They went to 3%, and of course, they followed back to the trend line. So is this a regime change? No, it's not. Um, is this a moment where the bond market, especially at the front end, can cyclically reprice higher? Yes, it is, because the Federal Reserve will tighten. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And I think, Alf, you're you know, reminding us of the shorter term situation against the longer, more structural term story is so important. I think, Weston, the question that keeps coming up now is, can Bitcoin uh, perform, recover in a, in a sh rising interest rate environment, even if it's short term? Is a hawkish Fed bad for Bitcoin valuation? What are you looking at when you look at the Bitcoin chart here? Uh, I certainly don't look at uh, FOMC expectations. Um, <laughs> and, the, and the reason why is because I don't think that Bitcoin um, traders are are particularly concerned with that either way. Um, I don't think that. Um, I mean, it's it's just it really is just based on on flows, buys and sells um, that aren't necessarily uh, attached to something like um, inflation. Of course, there are people that. So what happens is there are people that have a certain you know uh, narrative, a reason for why they are long Bitcoin, why they hold it. It could be you know any any number of reasons. Um, and then when it when the price actually does the, you know goes in the direction that you want it to, it validates your whatever your insert the blank reason is. Um, for me, the story of, for Bitcoin for Q4, right, it's basically it revolves around 
this um, ETF launch um, from BITO um, in the US. So basically, if you look at it from October, right? And I talked about this with uh, Jim um, Bianco and, and Ash uh, towards the end of the year, but you know, this, this is, so so we're at a very critical like level right now. Um, and the reason is because like the, around this like BBC USD forty thousand ish like level, and this is like not exact or anything like that, but that's around the point where you start like you know this October rally up to these like sort of new highs, and then it's basically right back down to this break even level. So right now, anyone who is who was long from there, if they just held on, they're now looking at potentially you know uh, having a you know a, a negative PNL. So what what happened was you have um, these CME uh, futures. Um, you know, ETF, uh, Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin futures back ETF. Excuse me. Um, so if you look at this, this, this second chart, you'll see like this CFTC, uh, COT data. Um, and basically, you know, um, okay, yeah. So th this, is, this is a chart of basically Bitcoin futures and uh, the the launch of ProShares uh, ETF. And you could see that this there was this run up like bef right before you know leading into it. That was that was literally you know ProShares and the rest of them. Uh, like get, getting their their you know ETF like uh, literally you know in, in order and as well as like front running speculators and all that kind of thing, and then it launched and then you have um and you have a lot of open interest open uh, at that point. This whole rally is kind of artificial in in my mind because this is all just kind of mechanical to in order to to make this ETF and you know for inflows and share creations and all, all that kind of thing. And then the next chart you'll see um like this positioning um on CFTC. Um, that's, uh, okay. Yeah. So, so this is from the, this is actually, um, open interest from the peak, um, in November and you can see open interest is down 40%. So, uh, in, in CME futures and the next chart, um, you can see, uh, this is the, uh, positioning of de the dealer community, which is basically an inverse reflection of like, you know, the invest community and you can see open interest basically spikes and then falls alongside the price. Uh, next chart, um, this is okay. This is the asset management community who got in kind of late um, and you know at the peak, and they are now currently very long uh, CME futures. You can see the percentage of open interest is now they went from single digits to now a third of open interest as asset managers. They're long throughout this whole, whole like decline, and they are just starting to shed their positions. Uh, next chart um, is uh, and this is the ETF itself. This is a BITO. This is their holdings. And what I've circled here is both the daily holdings as of yesterday and the uh, CME's um, open interest position for January and February contracts. This is what the two contracts that they hold. They basically hold about half of open interest. Uh, this one ETF holds about half of open interest in, in Bitcoin. So if BITO, the ETF, holds half of the open interest um, of uh, CME Bitcoin. And CME Bitcoin was responsible for that rally from uh, the beginning of October to, uh, you know, into November and then and then down again. Um, well, then you really need, you need to look at this CTF. This is kind of ground zero. So um, that's how I'm looking at it. It's, it's just kind of a mechanical thing. It's just a launch um, and it, it got a lot of, you know, sort of immediate initial inflows, you know, fastest uh, on record. And now it's just, uh, you know, it's that. It's, it's not really a story about inflation or anything like that. It's just a flows-driven story. And this is the channel of flows that I've basically seen. So if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, I think people, when they were looking at that chart and the decline, they were saying, oh, it trades like a risk asset. That's why they're making the link with inflation. You're saying forget the 
forget the pyramid part. Just look at the 40. All of that was fictional or, or flow driven based on the launch of the ETF. Now watch that 40 level, because that's what where it would have been trading. And that's what we need to pay attention to now to get a sense of where it's going forward. Is that a, is that a fair summary of what you just said? You said it better than I did. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. This is basically so it could this is going to either be a floor. This is, you know, this could very well be bottom tick currently for 2022. I mean, who knows, right? But or it can be um, should it break clean, um, you can get significant downside. But you're but you're always going to get like, you know, uh, buyers coming in. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are sitting still sitting on profits that um, that that would like to take those profits um, that are happy to. So. Right. Uh, that, uh, you know, I think on both on the macro picture and on Bitcoin, so helpful to have that perspective. So let's dive in a little bit and and people definitely asking very specific strategy questions because we are at this point where people are trying to figure out what to do with their por portfolios. Um, you know, either one jump in. I think, Weston, this might be one for you, but but I'll certainly feel free um, to jump in as well. Question from Marshall on the exchange. Should I move my stack into Tether and buy back in later? I have already lost all my gains plus 10%. Uh, I, I don't know because I'm not you. Um, only you right. can make that decision. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, but it's sort if, of, it's if, sort of this inflection point, isn't it for both of you though, that if people are um, you know, if they if they rode this down and they're underwater, uh, you know, what do you do in that perspective, regardless of the underlying asset? You know, that you, you have to understand your risk profile, I guess, right? I yeah. would say, oh, Go sorry, Wes. I would just say um, to Marshall, I think this was his name. Yeah. If the volatility swings and the drawdowns are more than you can stomach, then probably the sizing of your position was too large in the first place. Um, then in general, when that is the case, not necessarily your case, I don't know, but when that is the case, then you should just adjust, you know, I would just adjust my position back to my risk appetite. And that's always an assessment that people need to do before entering a trade. That's one. And then, um, well, the second one more, yeah, more tactically, uh, I myself at the Macro Compass have been tactically short Bitcoin for macro reasons. So Weston is talking about flows that are very relevant. Of course, they move the market short term. I also think there is a relatively bearish macro constellation for Bitcoin here. Uh, it has played already. It's down 10% year to date. Um, would I reopen a short position here? I'm not that sure. I'm more inclined to actually take profits on my shorts when it comes to a tactical assessment of Bitcoin positioning. Weston, we have a question uh, related to your update on the Turkey fiasco. This is um, from RAR and Ewan Gray, two, two different people, RAR from YouTube, Ewan from uh, RV site. I'm interested in your update on the Turkey fiasco and how or if it might spill over into the EU euro market. Lira update from Weston would be great. And I'm interested to hear both of these because when we see selling and volatility in markets, you know, what we really always want to look for is is the unexpected happening or or any kind of spillover in any kind of emerging market situation that may be dealing with its own fundamentals, but this will put added pressure on on situations. Um, I Weston, I know you've been all over those stories. Um, anything that you want to update us on? The Lira, um, I'm actually, I, I I will be putting out an update video. There there are so many there are so many headlines that basically are coming out. Um, but so I can't. I have to before I kind of you know 
like speak out of like uh just pure ignorance as opposed to just you know my usual like 50 percent ignorance um yeah i i can't so i don't want to comment too much but what I, what i will say is that uh clearly this erdogan um you know rolling out of this policy um is not being you know accepted with open arms by the turkish people um you have dollar lira now back up at 14 somewhere around there uh, the volatility has come down a little bit. The realized volatility, but but it's still you're still looking at a realized volatility that's that you know uh, one that's still you know on par with Bitcoin, e- given even with the, the volatility of recent Bitcoin. So um, this is like I said, like in in terms of where like the directional sort of um, uh, trade for like the the lira itself um, or sort of a spillover effect from um, you know you banking and all that. That's that's all kind of you know we'll we'll have to see how how the you know mo- we'll mostly have to see how the like the the people on the ground in Turkey whether or not they adopt this um you know this this new sort of uh I don't want to call it scheme it's this 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 policy uh for depositors you know to pr- protect them from from FX uh, losses and all that um so we'll have to see about that but um what I will say is that um. If you if you look at basically the if you look at the lira um, as you know from somebody on the ground in Turkey, you know lira volatility like a, what 100 vol or 80 vol or you know realized vol that is not okay that is completely unacceptable uh, for for your currency to 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 move that way um, and it's going to continue to cause as I said in my video it's going to continue to cause this like domestic social unrest. And that's very dangerous because it's going to, you know, you combine that with like a um, Erdogan who is up for re-election, um, and if he can't fix the situation on the ground in, the, you know, in the economy, and people are getting hit on a, you know, feeling it on a day-to-day basis, he's going to create some sort of geopolitical external volatility that's going to spill over into commodity and, you know, risk asset volatility globally, um, especially with like Russia, net gas, um, Ukraine, all that, like you know, all mixed in, and so th- I, I think that there's significant geopolitical uh, volatility risk associated with the lira, and that in itself is um, not good for financial markets. Yeah, and and why so many of our viewers have been watching your thread on that so closely. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Alf, we have a question from Goncalo on the exchange. Hi, four months ago, Alf turned bullish tech and bonds and said to short cyclicals. This is, again, four months ago. So the market went completely against his trade. Could he comment on whether he still thinks that's the correct current trade? Doesn't a liquidity event, if doesn't a liquidity event, if the Fed tightens too much, also affect tech? How does he manage all these variables? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I've been long tech and short Russell in 2021 uh, for a while. This actually worked pretty well. Um, Nasdaq overperformed Russell by 20% during that year. Um, I am still, by the way, in my asset allocation, which is very transparent. It's available at the macro compass. There is no hiding. Um, The latest update was still long Nasdaq, which is true, and it's working against me. Um, 
So the way I look at that is I am long, um, let's say, the idea was to be long quality tech. I chose NASDAQ in, in that uh, as the location box to simplify, let's say, and to just choose a ticker for people to let them understand what I was looking at. They also remarked the fact that I was net short the equity market. Against being long NASDAQ, I was short the Russell, short China, short Brazilian equities. So if you just combine the overall equity positioning was slightly net short, and the Nasdaq leg is not working well, but this is a multi-leg trade. So it's not one trade, but it's you know more together. There are more legs to this trade. In general, uh, if I go with one trade out, one investment idea out, uh, not taken in the context of asset allocation, but just literally as a tactical investment idea, and I'm wrong, you'll just see me saying that. I'm just gonna stop out because as everybody else out there, I will be right, hopefully, 55 to 60% of the times, I'll be wrong. 45 to 40% of the times when I'm wrong, I will just stop out. I mean, limiting your downside risks is as important in order to make money at the end of the year. And I'm not, I'm not a guru. I'm just one of you guys. Yeah, well said. And that's, uh, again, to bring up your point earlier to, uh, to Marshall, understanding your risk profile and making sure that you are trading uh, you know, appropriate to that. Weston, I know you've been watching, uh, back to the issue of big tech, I know you've been watching the situation in Taiwan. Why Why is that important? What? Why are you paying close attention to that corner of the world? Yeah, so there's no, there's no situation yet, um, and there just may be. So I, I put out a, a video recently, um, basically because, so everyone's talking about yeah, there's a sell-off in that. Like you don't need me to tell you that. Um, so what I, what, what I've basically, you know, I'm looking at is if you look at the Thai X index, the, the Taiwan stock market. Uh, so going into this year, it's basically hitting you know record highs, just like many other indices. However, it's being driven by um, almost purely by domestic levered margin uh, up retail um, in Taiwan. Something like uh, like I read something like 12 million accounts. That are um, that have like an you know average gain of almost um, a million uh, Taiwan dollars, or like you know th like thirty five thousand USD, um, which is I think is not bad for an average account. Um, but in in twenty in uh, twenty twenty one alone. So, but if you recall, in May of twenty twenty one, there was this like, kind of this this one day like eight percent limit down flash crash. Well, not a flash crash, but a, a, a crash in the Taiwan stock market that led to another like five percent downside immediately thereafter later that day uh, on the Nasdaq. Um, and and that was largely due to um, you know there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons for what may have triggered it you know COVID um, risk uh, or COVID uh, case number one in Taiwan either way buy and sell orders are what move markets and what happened that day was that margin calls started to just you know cascade and you just got this like uh, this this forced unwind of of retail uh, traders in in Taiwan. Well, that same exact sort of scenario or a very similar setup is happening right now in which Taiwan can be um, this sort of safe haven long for tech. If you're getting out of U.S. tech right now and you need tech exposure or you need semiconductor exposure, you know, being long Taiwan is, is, a, is a way to play it. And you can see Taiwan has been outperforming the Nasdaq year to date and all that kind of thing. But you have to be very careful because of how much margin leverage there is currently in uh, that is positioned long uh, in Taiwan, and should you get another one of those sort of you know, like you know sharp eight percent like you know limit down declines in Taiwan or EWT, which is the iShares ETF listed in the U.S., if you get another one of those things, and then you know you have a sharp sell-off in semiconductors uh, in in the SOX index and the Nasdaq, 
from here, you're now looking at potentially, you know, uh, getting into momentum into a bear market territory for uh, for Nasdaq. So what I'll say is that if things seem to stabilize, if you know CPI and Powell's like confirmation and everything goes well, and just make sure you're watching Taiwan as well, and make sure there's no sort of like you know uh, triggering of like um, margin calls and all that that can that can really destroy that market because then you will have bought the dip way too early and there would be another second leg of selling. So just something that I want to throw out there just so that it's there's so many risks out there that, that we don't know about. This is one that we can actually at least be aware of because the foreigners are very underweight and therefore nobody's probably looking at this. So I just want to throw that out there. Amazing. Thank you so much for doing that, Weston. And we know that uh, Weston will be watching it for all of us as well. Um, and we'll be sure to um, include it in his videos on YouTube that he does, um, which are amazing. And we need that. We need to be paying attention to all of this. And Alf, I want to ask you on the back of that, you know, as we enter again this week where we have these major events, we have Pal, who, let's remember, has been surprising people with uh, what he's been saying, both in testimony, was a big market mover last time. The Fed minutes moved the market, which you know we don't usually see that happening. Um, so there is a lot of r r potential risk around that. And we have a Wednesday, a CPI number coming out. Against that backdrop, are you concerned at all about uh, risk in the market um, when everyone's trying to move the same way or people are trying to exit trades at the same time, you know, we've had a lot of conversations on Real Vision about the different nature of the market because of passive investing and, you know, just how things work. It's great on the upside, but what happens on the downside? You know, what happens in a more volatile market? Uh, are you concerned about that at all? Well, ask me. So, uh, a few months ago, was managing a uh, 20 billion portfolio, so was moving large flows through the street. What I learned during the COVID pandemic, for example, is that in March 2020, um, let's say in February 2020, you could move, I could move large sizes in the market and they were absorbed relatively well because both implied and realized volatility was very low. So market makers felt relatively comfortable despite they are pushed by regulation not to warehouse too much risk compared to 10 years ago. In when realized volatility is very low and implied volatility as well, they feel more enticed to warehouse risks on their balance sheet. So they can facilitate large trades from end user clients like I used to be until a couple of months ago. In March 2020, there were a lot of dislocation in the market, a gazillion of those, and most of those actually caused by total absence of liquidity out there. When you were on the other side and you were trying to either get exit liquidity, let's not talk about that, there was no exit liquidity whatsoever, but even worse, when you were trying to catch this dislocation on the other side, there was also no chance to do that because none of these risk, taker, risk takers wanted to take any risk on their balance sheet. At that point, they were absolutely paralyzed. So behavior is very, uh, let's say, convex, so it, it gets into one direction very quickly and also reverses very quickly. So there is always the risk, um, or there were uh, larger risks, if you ask me, in, in 2021 at some point or 2019, when positions are very crowded and there is very little realized and implied volatility, it's like having a very crowded room, um, a very crowded party, let's say, in a small room. And then the exit door is always of the same size. And when a couple of people want to get out very early, they feel very stupid because the party can get on for a couple of hours and they miss the nice part of the party. But when the remaining 12 people want to get out at the same time because the music has stopped, 
the door is always the same size and it can even get very cramped and, and even smaller than it was before. So always, you know, try to bear that in mind that, you know, procyclical behavior, both on risk on and on, on risk off is actually a real thing in markets. That's right. And something we're, we're going to have to be very conscious of and watch very closely over the coming days. I hate to say we squeaked a few extra minutes out, but we have to leave it there. Um, thanks to both of you. Really great insight, I think, for people to take with them into the week. Um, we had some questions we didn't get to on the Chinese property market um, from Mark on the uh, RV site, LP on the RV site about oil, copper, and commodities. I want to remind you all, uh, the conversation continues at the exchange. Um, Alf and Weston will be looking there. And Alf will be back tomorrow, especially on the metals and commodities question. Alf's going to be back tomorrow on The Daily Briefing with Tony Greer, um, who you know is all over that. Uh, so we will continue to stay across all of these events uh, for you all week long. Thank you so much uh, for the great conversation. Take care and good luck out there. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.